We continue our series this morning, Seeing with Power, chapter 3, beginning in verse 1. Paul says, You foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you? It was before your eyes that Jesus Christ was publicly portrayed as crucified. Let me ask you only this, did you receive the Spirit by works of the law or by the hearing of faith? Are you so foolish, having begun by the Spirit, are you now being perfected by the flesh? Did you suffer so many things in vain, if indeed it was in vain? Does he who supplies the Spirit to you and work miracles among you do so by works of the law? Or by hearing with faith. So this week, every one of us who is of age should go to the polls. We are going to elect a, maybe, if it's not uh, hanging Chad time, we're going to elect uh, the 45th President of the United States, and yet for most people, we have a problem with our options. But it's interesting to me to see how postmodern both of the major candidates are. Let me explain. In uh, 1932, Franklin Delano Roosevelt was elected the 32nd President of the United States. During his 12 years in the White House, he was almost never pictured as he truly was. He wanted nobody to take a picture of him sitting in a wheelchair. Eleven years before he was elected, polio struck hard. And he was in a wheelchair almost all the time, but he wanted no attention drawn to that. And what is true of FDR is true of every modern hero. Every modern hero has no warts, no weakness, no limitations, no foibles at all, or at least they're covered and masked. Every modern hero is bigger and faster and stronger and smarter than you and me. And that's why they're our hero. FDR said, if you ever film me, I need to be seated in a car... Or standing behind a lectern, he spent months after polio struck working on strengthening his upper body so he could stand erect. Never wanted to be pictured walking, never wanted to be pictured in a wheelchair. But the postmodern hero is different. Think Princess Diana. The postmodern hero, you want to see their weakness. You want to see them. It it humanizes them. I mean, think Princess Diana. Think Bill Clinton. (laughs) Think Hillary Clinton. Think Donald Trump. Their warts are on full display. And yet, for many, they are heroes because of their weakness. The difference between being modern and postmodern. Do you know before 
FDR died, he made an emphatic declaration that nobody ever memorialize him. He wanted no statues, he wanted no memorial, and yet 50 years after his death, Bill Clinton, President of the United States, decreed and authorized that a bronze statue be built of FDR near the Tidal Basin in Washington, D.C. And it's interesting, Daniel Shore, that legendary newsman, called it the great battle over a wheelchair. (laughs) Because those who were wedded to a modern hero said, no wheelchair. But those who were postmodern and believed that disabilities were not something to be hidden said wheelchair. In fact, they said, historically, it makes sense to portray FDR with all of his weaknesses. And so you know what President Clinton did? After saying he, said, after saying he felt both sides pain, he said Roosevelt would be cast in bronze sitting in the personally designed wheelchair. But you know what also he didn't say? He wouldn't have the cigarette holder that was ubiquitous. I mean, he always had it in his mouth. He wouldn't have that memorialized in bronze. Daniel Shore said, why does everybody with a cause believe that Roosevelt would support it? So think about you. What kind of hero do you want? Do you want a modern hero that shows no weakness, no limitation, no foibles? Do you want a superman or superwoman, or do you want a postmodern hero? One who suffers, one who has limitations, one who displays weakness. Do you know something? In the history of the world, there's only been one person who fit both descriptions. Weakness and strength. And that's Jesus. Think of it. He's the Lord of all and servant of many. He healed people of their suffering and yet he didn't heal himself of his own suffering. And you know what Paul says here in this text? That Jesus can make you that kind of hero for others. You know how? Well, let's take a look and see. First, notice the reception. Look at verses 1 and 2. O foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you? It was before your eyes that Jesus Christ was publicly portrayed as crucified. Let me ask you only this. Did you receive the Spirit by works of the law or hearing of faith? I love the way J.B. Phillips translates this verse. He translates it this way. Oh, you dear idiot Galatians. Now, there are some commentators who think that's way too rough. But that's exactly what Paul is saying. Oh, you dear idiots. Literally, the Greek says, you ignorant Galatians. Who has cast a spell over you through the power of an evil eye? Now, if you've been here for a few years, you know that we, in one of our series, 
we talked about what an evil eye means. Remember in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus is speaking and he says, the, the eye is the lamp of the body. If your eye is bad, your whole body will be full of darkness. What's he talking about? He's not talking about moral compromise. He's not talking about ethics. He's not talking about a lust. He's talking about greed. Every Jew would know that to speak of an evil eye means that you're stingy, that you only think of your own desires and your own wants. And what Jesus is saying is, if your eye is bad, if all you're doing with your eye is looking at yourself, then your whole body, your whole life will be full of darkness. And that's exactly what Paul is saying the Galatians have done. What he's saying is you've rejected the work of Christ and turned your eyes to your own work. Your thinking that you're standing with God is determined on how faithful you are in keeping the law. Somebody has said today Christians are recognizing more and more that they're empty. That they have a need for spiritual power. And yet they look to themselves for their power rather than to the Lord. Look what Paul's saying. Did you receive the Spirit by works of the law or the hearing of faith? It's not a rhetorical question. Because in verse 5, he says they have received the Holy Spirit. In fact, Paul is making it clear that no Christian, no Christian can be a Christian unless the Holy Spirit indwells them. So what's he talking about when he says, have you received the Spirit? What he's saying is, don't you recognize who indwells you? Don't you know that the third person of the Trinity lives within you? Don't you know that you are the temple of the Holy Spirit? Why are you ignoring the one who can apply the works of Christ to your life? Remember, it's the Father, God the Father, who appoints a plan, appoints us to salvation. It's the Son who accomplishes what the Father appoints. And then it's the Holy Spirit who applies Jesus' accomplishments to our lives. I love what J.I. Packer of Regent University in Vancouver said to Christians years ago. Do you know what you have? Do you know who it is who resides in you? Have you been melted by the spiritual understanding that the glory of God has come not only on you, but in you? Now think of what that means. In the Old Testament, when David brought the Ark of the Covenant to Jerusalem and put it in the tabernacle, do you remember what happened? All the priests who were there hit the deck. They fell down without any attempt at falling. They were trying to stand, but they couldn't because the glory of God, the power of God, had descended on that place. When Moses is met by God at the rock, it's the power of God. When he's met there by God at the burning bush, he falls on his face. The power of God, the Shekinah glory shows up. And what Paul is saying is, that same power, that same person, that same God is dwelling in you and in the body of believers in your church. 
Second, notice the revelation. Look at verse 3. Are you so foolish, having begun by the Spirit, that you now are being perfected by the flesh? I have a friend who's a retired cardiac surgeon. And years ago, he told me, because I asked him what it was like to be retired, and I kind of drilled down and so forth, and and he said, you know, when I retired, I received over a thousand letters. I said, well, really, what did they say? He said, well, some of them said, you know, if it weren't for you, I wouldn't have known my father. (laughs) If it weren't for you, I, I wouldn't be here. If it weren't for you, I wouldn't have known my grandparents. And then I said, what's the toughest thing you ever had to do as a surgeon? He said, talk to the families after I lost one of their loved ones on the table. I said, really, that must have been hard. He said, yeah, it was, but you know what was the hardest one? When I talked to these families before the surgery and I said, you know, there's less than 5% chance that this procedure is going to work. And, you know, if you don't want to go through that, I, I would suggest you just say no. And they'd say, we want you to do it. We have faith in you. He said, yeah, but it's less than 5% chance. We want you to do it anyway. And then when I'd come out of surgery and I'd talk to them, they'd be crying and as if they were surprised. And I thought to myself, it's less than 5%, but that was hard. It's hard to deal with their shock. Now that's a little like the shock of Paul. What's he say? Before your own eyes... Jesus was publicly portrayed as crucified. You know what the word publicly portrayed is in Greek? It means placarded. It means graphically displayed. What he's saying is, before your own eyes, you saw all of the gore of the cross. Now let me ask you something. How can he say that when this is over 20 years after the cross event, when none of the people that he's writing to were in Jerusalem, when none of them actually saw Jesus on the cross? How can he say before your eyes, Jesus was placarded? You know how he can say it? I preached the graphic portrayal of the cross to you. And what he's meaning is the Holy Spirit spoke to you. The Holy Spirit moved your heart. The Holy Spirit opened the eyes of your understanding. You see, when Paul came to Galatia, he didn't give the five handy steps at communicating with your spouse. (laughs) He didn't give three effective ways to pray as a disciple. He determined to know nothing among them but Jesus Christ and Him crucified. And so when He begins to open His mouth and speak about the cross and all that it meant and all of its vivid reality, what He's saying is that the Holy Spirit in you drove it deep into your heart. I think of a friend of mine. For years, he'd go to church. For years, he heard the Bible read. For years, he heard God's name. Sometime in vain, sometimes not. But on an early spring day, more than 20 years ago, in a field in West Virginia, 
Jesus captured his heart. More than 20 years ago, the Holy Spirit captured more and more of his heart. That's what the Holy Spirit does when he opens your eyes. You know what happens? When the Holy Spirit is perfecting you, when the Holy Spirit is growing you up, when the Holy Spirit is doing what the law could never do, you know what he does? He makes Jesus more beautiful in your eyes. He makes him more beautiful. That's why 260 years ago, Jonathan Edwards would not allow anybody to come to the communion table or join his church unless he was convinced that they had experienced an act of Holy Spirit grace. What he was looking for and listening to in their speech was a changed affection. Because he knew that genuine faith is not measured by how much you have up here or how obedient you are with your will, but how much the Holy Spirit has revealed the beauty of Jesus to you and has changed your affections. You are growing to love Him. Third and finally, notice the realization. Look at verse 5. Does He who supplies the Spirit to you and work miracles among you do so by works of the law or by hearing with faith? Listen to what Paul says to the Corinthians in 2 Corinthians chapter 3. It's, it's amazing what he says. Listen to what he says. Not that we, talking about the apostles, not that we are sufficient in ourselves to claim anything that's coming from us, but our sufficiency is from God the Holy Spirit. Do you know what he means? You know what he's saying? The only difference between me and you is the realization that it's not about me and you, it's about Him, the Holy Spirit of God. And who He points to? Jesus. We sang about it a few minutes ago. 600 years before Paul, the Lord came to the prophet Zechariah and He said this, not by power, Not by might, but by my Spirit, says the Lord. Not by your power, not by your wisdom, not by your intelligence, not by your looks, not by your gifts, but by my Spirit, says the Lord. That's exactly what Paul's saying to the Galatians. You know, I have a friend who started out as a Methodist and then he saw the light. About 50 years ago, he was ordained as a Methodist. And in the Methodist church, they ask a question 50 years ago, they still ask today. Are you moving on to perfection? They ask again, are you moving on to perfection? You know what that means? Are you having devotion time with the Lord? Are you trying to rid yourself of sin? Are you renouncing sin? Are you starving your flesh and feeding the Spirit? My friend said 50 years ago, I said yes. But today, I'd say, who the heck knows? (laughs) In other words, any significant change that has occurred in my life is not the product of my doing, it's the product of His doing. And the fundamental question that Paul is asking these Galatians is how in the world could you go back to the law? Why would you put yourself back under that system? Why would you put yourself back in a place where all you can think about is how you're doing? 
Why would you take your eyes off Jesus and put them on yourself? Because there's no power there. Jesus was not only justified before his Father for you, but he's also given you his Spirit. And the way you grow in knowing Jesus is the same way he brought you into his kingdom. You see, according to Paul, spiritual power never hinges on you and me. It always hinges on him. His work in your life. That's why the hymn writer said this, mold me, make me, fill me, use me, Spirit of the living God, fall afresh on me. Now, he's already in you. But what that hymn is praying is, rise up, Holy Spirit. Capture my affections with Jesus. Mold me. Make me. Fill me. Use me. You know, years ago, somebody said to me, what do you do when you go to a bedside and they're ready to die? What do you do when somebody is having their bodies wasting? What do you say? I said, say? It's not about what you say. I'm there to listen. I'm there to say, tell me about you. The same is true of our walk with Christ. I'm much more interested in what he might say to me <laughs> than what I say to him. Last year we were studying the book of Hebrews. And we saw that there's one question that underlies that book, and it's this. If Jesus loves me, why is my life so hard? Remember the answer? that I might fix my eyes on Jesus, the author, the finisher, the perfecter, the sanctifier of my life. How do you find yourself turning away from sin? What does it in your life? What changes you? What changes you is Jesus becomes more and more beautiful to you. And you want more of him and less of you. Let's say you're struggling to forgive somebody. So you pray, Lord, help me to forgive them. <laughs> Lord, take my anger away. You know how the Lord answers that prayer? He takes you back to the cross. He always takes you back to the cross. You know, in Luke 15, when the younger brother comes home, you know who it cost? It cost the father his dignity, but it cost his elder brother a share of the inheritance. Remember, he'd already gotten his share. Now, for him to come home, he's going to get some of his older brother's share. It cost the father, but it also cost the elder brother to have his younger brother restored. So think of Jesus. 
He's our elder brother. It cost him everything to bring us home. It cost him everything to bring us home. We became a co-heir with him, meaning he's no longer our elder. How do you forgive somebody? You go to the cross and you say, boy, if Jesus can do that for me, who am I to hold on to this anger and animosity? You abandon every attempt to run your own life. And once you go to the cross, you get all the freedom and all of the power you need to forgive. No wonder Paul says, Oh, you dear idiots. I'll quote that other hymn I've mentioned before. Lay your deadly doings down, down at Jesus' feet. Stand in Him and Him alone, gloriously complete. Lay your deadly doings down. Good things, bad things, all of it at Jesus' feet. Stand in Him and Him alone, gloriously complete. You know why? Because of all of the heroes that we have in our lives, there's none like Jesus. He's got all the strength you need. He's got all the compassion you need. Think about that. Amen.